Are you a high-performing real estate investor who's looking to further elevate your performance? If so, download our free guide, Raising the Bar, Five Steps to Elevate Your Habits by joining our insider network at elevatepod.com. This guide created by yours truly has the power to put your transformation on autopilot and exponentially change your trajectory. Go get your free copy now at elevatepod.com. Welcome to Elevate, the masterclass where we dissect the elements of exceptional achievement and lifestyle design with a focus on personal growth and real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Tyler Chesser. Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chester. I'm so thankful to have you here. And I'm blessed and grateful to be sitting with Rob Beardsley today. Rob is really one of the you know greatest authorities on underwriting and evaluating multifamily real estate investments. And you're going to learn a lot about his evaluation of where we're at currently in the economic cycle, how that impacts your investments, how that impacts your assumptions, your decision-making, and how one of the best investors in the country is really looking at all of these different factors. And, you know, there's a lot of turbulent winds moving in various different directions. And so I think today's episode will help you make more sense of that and make better investment decisions because ultimately real estate can only be a phenomenal vehicle for us if we understand all of these moving parts and if we make effective decisions. And so today is a valuable, valuable day. Elevate podcast is all about mindset, mind expansion, and personal development for high-performing real estate investors. Today's no different. I'm your host, Tyler Chesser, and I'm a professional real estate investor and high-performance coach. It is my job to decode the stories, habits, and multifaceted expertise of world-class investors and other experts to help you elevate your performance and lifestyle. Are you ready to take it to another level? It is time. Let's raise the bar together. And before we dive into this episode, I want to encourage you to pay the fee um, because the fee is really just for you to pay it forward and share this with someone else. Share this episode with one other person, whether it's someone that you know, you've known them for years and years and years, or maybe you just met them. Just go ahead and grab the link and share this with them. The only way that we can continue to expand our message and, and impact more people is if you do us the favor of making the introduction and uh, referring us to other people. So uh, we don't ask you to pay a dime. All, all we ask you to do is to share this with someone else. We also ask you, if you haven't done so already, to give us a rating, a review, subscribe, or follow Elevate Podcasts and wherever it is that you listen or watch podcasts, because we're going to continue to bring massive value. And it is very helpful for us if you, uh, if you give us a review. And of course, follow the podcast, uh, a rating as well. So with all that said, guys, I'm excited to dive in. I want to introduce you to Rob Beardsley, who oversees acquisitions and capital markets for the firm and has acquired over $100 million of multifamily real estate. And again, the firm is Lone Star Capital Group. He has evaluated thousands of opportunities using proprietary underwriting models. Can I speak today, guys? I, I, I will try to spit it out here. And published the number one book on multifamily underwriting, The Definitive Guide to Underwriting Multifamily Acquisitions. Guys, this is a wide-ranging conversation. It's a deep conversation when it comes to evaluating investments and evaluating the environment that we find ourselves in. And so I think this, this conversation can be extremely valuable for you. That is my true hope. And with all that said, without further ado, please welcome Rob Beardsley. Welcome to Elevate, my friend. How are you? 
I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the show. No, my pleasure, man. I'm excited about this conversation. Excited to explore the crevices of your mind and your intellect in real estate and otherwise. I think this is going to be a very insightful conversation. Before we dive into that, if you were to describe yourself in the way that the people that know you best or closest or even deepest, like the people that know Rob Beardsley more than anyone else in the world, what would they say about you? They would say that I'm very focused and that could be a good thing. It's usually a good thing, but it can also be a bad thing because it, if I don't see a purpose in something, I have a very hard time making steps forward on it. I kind of need to be able to see the end game to be motivated to do something. I don't like to just do something for the sake of it, which, you know, sometimes it's nice to just play a game or something like that and not really have a, have a end goal there. But yeah, so I'd say focused and, um, I don't know. We'll just leave it at that. No, I, I like that. And, and it's so funny that you say that in terms of like, oh, well, sometimes it makes sense to just play a game and there to be no purpose. But I'm, I'm almost of the belief that when I'm playing a game or if I'm doing something, whether it's relaxing or if I'm taking a walk or maybe it's something where there doesn't seem like a direct purpose towards like maybe my business goals. I almost look at it as like a purpose of like recharging or re, you know, invigorating my energy levels and so forth. But I don't know if you ever think about that, but I, I didn't realize that I think this way until you said that, but has that ever come across your mind consciously or subconsciously? Yeah, definitely. And also I think from experience, I've learned that, Hey, you may not see the end game here, but if you go along with it, there's going to be something good at that turn or in that corner, you know, down the road. So um, I don't know. I think I have a good gut to just kind of feel if something is uh, adding value or the right path. If I feel like, Hey, you know what, this is probably just not going to lead somewhere. Well, even if I can't see it, you know, I'm, I maybe will, you know, will trust my gut. So I think, yeah, I definitely agree. You got to bring purpose into it one way or another. And you mentioned gut there. And I think it's important to just touch on because there's some times where we're engaging in certain activities where our gut tells us, you know, something's off here. And perhaps when we dig into that, sometimes we recognize that there's a misalignment of values in a certain activity or engaging in a certain behavior. And I think it's important for us to listen to that and get clear on, well, what is it that's most important to me? You know, is my, is family most important to me? Is religion most important to me? Is health most important to me? Or where do those things fall on the values hierarchy and recognizing that, you know, whenever we're doing something, it's, it's either serving, you know, what's most important to us or, or it's serving things that are innately not as important to us. So I think that's a, a valuable exercise and I'm glad that you brought that up. So tell us a little bit about your, your upbringing, your backstory, just so we can understand a little bit more about the forces that formed this, this individual today that we know as Rob Beardsley. Yeah, sure. So <clears throat> I grew up in Silicon Valley to uh, you know wonderful family. Both parents worked at home. So I spent a lot of time with my parents. They back then ran a residential brokerage firm. Uh, so I was hearing them do real estate on the phone all day long. And so I was, had, it was, had exposure to that. But then at the same time, growing up in Silicon Valley, there was a big exposure to tech. And so I was motivated by tech. It was kind of, you know, it still is the, the flavor of the day and it's the exciting career path, you know, do a startup or go work at a big tech firm and, and whatnot. So I had both of those influences going into college and I, I went to school for computer science. So I was continuing down that tech path figured I'd maybe go into consulting because I like novelty. So being able to do something fresh and work on different projects all the time definitely fit my personality well. So I, I was heading down that path, but then somewhere along the way, I mean, really pretty early on, 
I circle back to real estate, my intellectual curiosity of just you know researching and um, okay, how do I make money? How do I keep it? How do I grow it? That kind of stuff, you know, simple stuff. I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel or build a rocket ship. Just hey, how do I make some money? And uh, I, you know, to me, just my being my pragmatic self, I just felt like wow, uh, you know, building a real estate business and investing in real estate that's got to be the best way to 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 create wealth and and grow it. And so that, that was just, you know, my, my focus turned to that. And I started building that out and re- learning everything I could listening to podcasts, reading books, going to meetups, and also going back to my parents and leaning on them and saying, well, Hey, this is what I'm interested in. How can I, how can I do this? What's the path? I mean, it wasn't exactly the same going from their single family uh, brokerage background to what, what we're in now, which is multifamily investments. But there's a lot of overlap. And I actually, going back to my upbringing, I turns out I knew a lot more about real estate than I really even knew myself, just because I just kind of absorbed it and took it for granted. Like, oh, of course I know these things because I just heard it all day long, right? So, uh, so that was cool. I think I was able to get up to speed rather quickly. But then on the flip side, which is also a really interesting observation is as I would drag my dad into the multifamily businesses was saying, Hey, you need to be investing your money here as well. This is, this is your, your, your next path. He had all these preconceived notions and, and, and decades of real estate experience in a different way, which I noticed actually held him back because like I said, they're preconceived notions. And so he had these ideas or terminologies. And so it was harder for him to kind of pick up the new terminology or the, or just a different way of doing things, right? He thought, oh, this is so weird. This is backwards. And then, well, is it backwards or is it just different? And so me coming at it so green and naive and whatnot, it just allowed me to jump in both feet and just really uh, just go at it aggressively. Yeah. There's so much value in, in the beginner's mindset and even just embracing that beginner's mindset as you continue to grow and recognizing that there's always something new to learn. And perhaps I can replace old wisdom or old, you know, uh, conceptions with, with new conceptions, which works in the current or where you're going. Right. And so thinking about that and, and reflecting back on some of those preconceived notions that you mentioned that your dad had as you were wanting to support him and, and, in building and amplifying and, you know, protecting his wealth as well. Could you talk to us a little bit about some examples of what those pre- preconceived notions were? Yeah, I have a funny one. And again, these aren't earth shattering things or, you know, make it or break it situations, but something that sticks out would be uh, his gripe about, I'd say about, about the, about the transaction itself, right? Because he, he was, a, he was a broker for a single family home. So he's buying and selling homes for his clients all the time. And so he's doing lots of transactions and in the single family space, right? People who are buying homes, they're not investment professionals, they're consumers, right? They're individuals. And there's a lot of law and just practices that protect that person, that consumer, because they're not a professional, right? But you go into the commercial real estate space and it's buyer beware and it's as is, where is, and it's just, it's, it's all the risk is on you. You're supposed to be the professional to keep yourself safe, right? There's no safeguard. So when, when he started looking at the, the multifamily business, he was just so shocked and surprised that the contracts were all, uh, you know, not template, right? In the single family space, it's just a standardized contract and, and it's just all straightforward. With commercial real estate, the contract is 100 pages long and it, every contract is different. And there's these, you know, you got to arm wrestle on all these different terms. So he was just shocked and, and taken aback by that. 
And, um, and then on like on the closing, for example, same thing, uh, going to the consumer side, right? You're not a real estate professional. You're not a finance professional. You're not expected to just know all the moving parts of the closing and okay, here's the loan amount. Here's the purchase price. Here are the closing costs. Here are the offsetting, uh, credits and, and things like that. Um, right. They just spoon feed it to you. Say, this is how much you need to wire into escrow. And then you, you buy the house commercial side. They don't tell you any of that. And so my dad was like, how, how are we supposed to know how much we're supposed to wire to escrow? It's like, well, you're supposed to calculate it, right? We need to, we need to put together our own sources of uses. So it's kind of, uh, like I said, small stuff, but just interesting when you look at it from the different perspectives. It is really interesting. And in, in like, when you take a step back, you know, some of those things you and I might say, well, you know, some of these things are not really super important in terms of real, the real mechanisms of how commercial real estate or multifamily real estate or all the different asset classes that commercial real estate offers can help you strengthen, build, you know, not only more streams of income, but obviously your overall wealth. And it's, it's interesting that those preconceived notions were so um, you know, hard to overcome and, and we don't criticize your dad, but it's a, it's a thought process in terms of how, how might other seemingly small or insignificant preconceived notions in other directions cloud our ability to learn more and to experience something that may feel, you know, a bit, um, foreign to us as we continue to, to learn and step into that. And I wonder if there were some things that maybe subconsciously were being communicated to him or, or he was, you know, sort of holding himself back to step into this new realm because maybe he didn't want to learn something new, or maybe he felt like the risks out, outweighed the rewards. I don't know if that resonates with you, but I think that these type of internal dialogues are things that we have to overcome continuously as we grow. You know what I'm saying, Rob? I think what you're touching on is just the, the bigger picture of it, those little things might add up to one big decision to not take action. Yeah. And that's the difference. And also to actually, you know, jump to a big one, uh, to, to finish the comparisons or the preconceived notions discussion is, uh, my dad had never raised money before in his life. Right. And in the commercial real estate business, that's a major fact. That's a major component to the business. You have to be able to raise capital to be able to buy assets and, and build the portfolio. And so I also similarly never raised capital before, but I didn't have any ideas about it. I didn't think it was easy. I didn't think it was hard. I didn't really know anything. I didn't know better. And so for him, yeah, he had this idea that, well, you know, I've maybe tried here and there raising money for certain projects or certain things. And it was hard and difficult, which the reality is, yes, raising money is really hard. Uh, but me being young and naive, I didn't know that. So I just, like I said before, jumped in as like, sure, we'll raise $4 million. Let's go. And let's talk to this person. <laughs> let's do this meeting. Right. And so, yeah, yeah. I learned my lesson, right. I was beaten down and figured out, oh, wow, this is actually a really hard thing to do. And, but that, but that also was a great lesson. So I think, yeah, that's kind of the big one would be the, the, the difficulties and the mindset of, yeah, raising capital. This is possible. People can trust me. People like me, that kind of thing. And if we knew how hard a lot of the things were uh, to, to accomplish in real estate, we probably would never go after it, but that there's a lot of beauty in the fact that, you know, maybe some willful, willful ignorance and just taking action and learning along the way. And then recognizing that you can get better at it as you go, you can refine your skills, you can iterate, you can improve, whether it's raising capital, whether it's underwriting an opportunity, whether it's evaluating, whether it's negotiating a structure of a partnership with, you know, other general partners, limited partners, um, and so forth. I mean, there's so many different facets of this business. 
but I think stepping into it and being willing to take that first step and letting momentum carry you through has been a principle that I've found to be extremely valuable in my own real estate business. And so, you know, you just illustrated a very valuable point to all the listeners to take action and be willing to let your willful ignorance take you through. So, but I wanted to, I wanted to settle in with you in this conversation and talk to you a little bit about, you know, what you've settled into in terms of your way of adding tremendous value in real estate is evaluating opportunities. You, you literally wrote the book on the definitive guide to underwriting multifamily acquisition. And so I would love to, to talk to you about how you're looking at deals. And, you know, you could even talk about perhaps some of the, you know, principles that, that you try to evaluate in terms of opportunities. You could also talk about some mistakes that you see investors make in terms of underwriting or evaluating opportunities. So where would you like to start, Rob? Yeah, there's definitely a lot there, right? That's a whole universe of, uh, of topics. But so, you know, as far as evaluating deals and underwriting, we, we take a definitely a, a holistic and bottom up approach. So, and I, and I think you have to, after a certain extent. So, and what I mean by that is we look at every individual deal and the analysis starts with the deal, right? We don't say, well, we love this neighborhood. So we're just going to buy any deal in this neighborhood, right? It, it starts deal first. And then we kind of go up from there. And, but that's not to say that we're willing to buy in, in poor areas. We still obviously do our homework on, on the market itself. But after you get past that, it's, it's really all about the, the opportunity itself. What created the opportunity? Uh, what's the business plan? And what are the numbers driving the opportunity and how do we finance it from a debt and equity perspective? So that's just kind of the basics of, of how we look at deals. And then our strategy is, is, is volume. We, we look at a lot of deals and through the process of looking at a ton of stuff. And number one, you have to have the relationships in place so that you get fed a lot of deal flow. Because when you start out in the business and your phone's not ringing, go, huh, what's going on? There's no deals, right? So <laughs> first it's the process of building relationships and kind of the, and your reputation and, and getting an established deal flow. Um, so, so our idea is let's, let's look at, you know, 500 deals in a year, which means if we narrow it down and do the, you know, three, four, five best ones, we're doing the top 1% of deals in our pipeline. And funny enough, what end, what, what it ends up looking like is we look at a ton of marketed deals where there's a lot of eyeballs on them and that's fine. There's good deals on market and there's good deals off market. But what ends up happening is we end up uh, finding ourselves in interesting situations where maybe a deal fell out of contract or maybe the deal hit the market and it really just got no love. And so it's, it stalled out and then we circle back to it. So all these unique kind of uh, not straightforward ways is the ways that we've been successful in actually finding those top 1% deals and, uh, and making them happen. So, so that's our, our st strategy and, and our method right now. Yeah. And I think it's important to, you know, to understand sort of that deal flow process you mentioned, it's like, if I'm sitting here and the phone's not ringing, then obviously that's not, you know, deals are not just going to find you. You've got to go out there and find the relationships, which then lead to the deal. So you have to understand those deal sources and obviously understanding the sub markets that, you know, meet the metrics that, you know, you feel are important in terms of these future success of your opportunities obviously is extremely important. But in terms of, you know, when you do find those deals, let's talk about those the top 1% of those deals, if you're looking at 500 deals in a year, you know, what's, what's, what is the requirements to meeting, you know, sort of the requirements for your company to make an acquisition? I mean, obviously we're, we would talk about due diligence and so forth and all those different things, 
But give us a high level. I mean, what is your investment thesis in terms of what is a deal that crosses the the closing table for you guys? Well, we're not asking for much, right? Can we just, can we get a five cap? (laughs) (laughs) Can someone give us a five cap? If we could get a five cap in a good market, uh, we would be very excited. And and that has made us excited, but that's a joke. But the, the, the real thesis right now is, um, is not so dissimilar from what I just said, but we are looking for good in-place income and with the opportunity to, to augment it through some sort of value add, whether it's uh, interior innovations, revenue generating amenities, um, or adding in a tech package or things like that. So uh, that that's what attracts us most right now. And the reason why I say now is because going back a year, two, about, about a year and a half, two years ago, we were really all about the value add stuff. We wanted to find the deals that nobody else wanted. We wanted the deals that were half vacant, that had down units, that uh, were in the rougher areas and had a lot of work to do. That's what attracted us about two years ago uh, because we felt that we had the skills and the ability to identify those opportunities when they were appropriately priced and could actually put a good business plan together and then go and execute. Uh, and, and we could buy those deals cheap enough to justify the risk of those deals. These days though, we feel that the market is not there anymore, that there's a lot of people chasing those value add deals. There's a lot of, uh, competition there. And so we look at it and think, well, why pay top dollar or full price for a deal that really should sell at a discount because it's in the rougher area and it's got no in-place income because it has vacancy and all that. So we've kind of flipped it and we're really looking for core plus opportunities, which are what I described before, which is good location, good asset. It has a strong in-place cash flow that we feel is durable and can grow over time. And that's more of a defensive strategy that if, if we, if, if the economy or the particular market or deal goes into bad times, we're safe because we we can rely on that in-place cash flow plus the long-term debt that we're able to put on those types of deals. So, so that's really what we're looking for. And the key about that is what I just mentioned last, which is the long-term debt. So what's funny about that is back in uh, 2018, when the Fed was raising rates every other meeting, everyone thought that they were going to hike us into a recession and everyone said, well, everyone could see it. Hey, interest rates are going up. We need to use fixed rate debt right now and lock in rates before they go higher. And back then we were doing bridge loans to, to, to uh, execute on transitional strategies where we were buy it, fix it, refinance or sell, right? Uh, Those deeper value adds. And everyone thought we were crazy for using bridge loans. They say, that's so risky. We're about to go into a recession. And why would you want to have a floating rate loan when interest rates are rising, right? Well, of course, in December of 2018, rates started going the opposite direction. They started declining. We didn't go into a recession at that time. And it was fine. Um, and then we had, co- and then, you know, a, a two years, a year or so later, we had uh, COVID hit, which again, interest rates went lower still. And due to other market forces that we don't have to get into, uh, bridge loans are basically the flavor of the day, uh, which I'm sure you've seen. And everybody wants to use bridge loans because they're providing higher leverage and they're pretty much almost as cheap as long-term debt. So everyone is drunk off bridge loans, in my opinion. And so now I'm the scaredy cat saying, oh, you guys are crazy using all these bridge loans. Uh, Look at, you know, we love to do deals with, um, you know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac long-term debt. So it's kind of flipped. And so who's right or who's wrong? I don't really know, but that's, that's the last piece of our strategy today, which is we, we love bridge loans. We've been very successful with them, but today we're more hesitant. We're, if a deal's on a bridge loan, we're going to look at it twice as hard and, and say, all right, are we sure about this? 
That's really interesting. I mean, you're almost a uh, contrarian. Uh, you're, you're, you know, everybody in the market's looking right. You're looking left and the opposite, depending on the flavor of the day, as you, as you mentioned there. So, I mean, what else are you seeing that, you know, are common sort of um, perhaps maybe it's maybe it's even preconceived notions or maybe it's even, you know, where's the herd looking right that you feel like they should be looking left otherwise? Yeah. So similar to the bridge loan idea, it's uh, so so here's the reason why people are using bridge loans, aside from the fact that they're cheap and and get you more leverage. Right. And, And everyone likes more leverage. If I can buy a deal, if I have, let's say, two million dollars of equity. And with a permanent loan, I can, that gets me a $6 million deal. Or if with a bridge loan, it gets me a $10 million deal, right? That's great. I can buy a bigger deal, uh, less equity to the table because I'm using more debt. The, the returns look bigger. So it's really just awesome. Uh, and it's just kind of beneath the surface, which are the, the larger risks, right? In the spreadsheet, there's no like red blinking light in the spreadsheet that says, hey, leverage is high, you know, be careful. Um, so you kind of have to go under the hood, do some sensitivities analyses and things like that to actually kind of look at that risk in the face. But the, um, the other main reason why bridge loans are so popular today is because of the way that permanent lenders are sticking to their underwriting guns and being conservative, right? So when you, when you get a permanent loan, the permanent loan is sized, meaning it's the lender determines how much of a loan they can give you based on the in-place income. They don't look out into the future and say, well, yeah, your NOI is going to be higher down the road. So we'll give you a bigger loan today. They look at, okay, what's in place. And then that's what they constrain their loan proceeds to. And they do that via a debt service coverage ratio. So they look at your net operating income and they divide it by the debt service. And they need that ratio to be in line with their metrics. And so if, if that metric is out of whack, they'll just lower the amount of debt that they're providing you until that metric comes into play. And so because the market is where it is and cap rates are so low, uh, if you go for a permanent loan, most deals today will only get 60% leverage, right? And who wants to do that? There's not that many, some, sure some people do, but not a lot of players actually want to do a 60% levered deal. And so they're forced to go into the bridge loan category, even though the deal itself isn't really a transitional deal, which that's what a bridge loan is. It's supposed to bridge you through your business plan. So, so that's kind of uh, the, the other piece where I think people are overlooking that, you know, they're, it's kind of like the classic uh, number one rule in finance, which is don't borrow short to invest long. It's, it's the same thing here. People are borrowing uh, short-term on a bridge to finance long-term deals, right? You might be buying a class A deal that's perfect, perfectly new asset, well-located. It's going to do super well in the next 10 years. But if you put short-term debt on it, you know, you're exposing yourself to greater risk in that shorter period of time. Hey guys, just a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back to the show. This episode of Elevate is brought to you by CF Capital, and you know how much I love real estate and how it can be a vehicle towards creating any outcome that you want in your life, which is really why we created CF Capital, a real estate investment firm that focuses on acquiring and operating multifamily assets that provide stable cash flow, capital appreciation, and a margin of safety for our investors, for our partners, and for the people that we serve. Our team leverages its expertise in acquisitions and management to provide investors like you with superior risk-adjusted returns while placing a premium on preserving capital. Our mission is to provide property investment and asset management solutions to help investors maximize their returns by investing in high-value multifamily communities. Our philosophy is that we can elevate communities together through this process. And I wanna invite you to go check out cfcapllc.com because we have a free ebook that's called the bottom line, the 10 ways to increase cash flow in an apartment complex. And I want to tell you that this is a value 
packed ebook. So I want to want to invite you to go check that out right now at cfcapllc.com. I think you're going to get a ton of value just from reading this, whether you apply it to your own business or whether you educate yourself further on what it would look like if you invested with CF Capital. So go check that out at cfcapllc.com. Again, that's cfcapllc.com and enjoy the rest of the show. The the larger degree of of equity required for deals as well as, you know, and you were just mentioning in terms of like permanent structure, permanent loan deal, obviously if you're at 60% loan to value versus 75 or 80% loan to value on a, you know, on a bridge deal, your cash on cash metrics, your internal rate of return metrics are going to be tremendously different. And so obviously you would look at that, I would imagine as a much less risky deal but how else are you generating interest on those type of deals and, and structures, obviously, in terms of the equity markets? You were talking about raising capital earlier and mentioning how hard it was for you to get started in that space. But now focusing on, on the way that you're approaching deals in this current environment, how do you structure your deals or are there other creative approaches that you've taken to amplify that equity sort of multiple and, and so forth? Yeah, yeah. This is the the real uh, crux of the matter, right? How do we actually still get ourselves into deals that we're comfortable with and happy with the returns. Right. Cause if, if I said, cause the solution for me isn't, well, I think there's risk in the market and I'm just going to do a 60% leverage deal. Right. No, I'm not going to be able to get very many investors. Right. There's certainly investors out there for that type of deal, but most investors aren't there for that. So that's not the solution. And so for, so that's kind of why, when I joked at the beginning of, well, can you give me a five cap? Because if I have a, a deal with in-place income at a 5% cap rate, that means I can actually get from a 10-year loan, a permanent loan, 75, 80% leverage. And that is incredible. That, that means I'm going to get really good cash on cash. The debt is cheap. I'm not over levered because I'm still being sized to that debt service coverage ratio constraint by the lender. And, and everything's going really well. So that's, you know, the last couple of deals we've done have been that profile where we were actually able to find a deal that had enough in-place income so that we could put a permanent loan of around 75% or so on day one. And that's, so that's amazing. I love that. Um, so that's kind of one strategy uh, that that's how we kind of still make deals work. So being then, patient and diligent and finding deals that still work in an environment where they seem very few and far between. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why we have to look at a ton of stuff because uh, yeah, I mean, you, you, cause if you just look at, I don't know, 50 deals or 20 deals, you might say, well, it doesn't exist. Right. Mm -hmm. And you know, you kind of have to look, I mean, I just had my conversation with my director of acquisitions today and you know, we're looking at a bunch of deals and over and over it's like three cap, three cap, three cap. <laughs> and it's like, I guess, I guess those don't exist anymore. It's like, well, look, we just bought a couple of deals that just fit that criteria. They have to exist. We just have to keep working. Um, so, so yeah, I would say that's the biggest thing, but at the same time, I don't want to completely shun the, uh, the value add bridge loan strategy. Uh, we're, we're every day we're looking at deals that fit that strategy and, uh, we're just looking for the ones where we feel that the, again, the reward outweighs the risk. And every deal is unique, right? Every business plan is unique. And I'm sure you look at deals and say, look, the in-place uh, cash flow is not to a place where we can, you know, put long-term permanent debt on this asset at a loan to value that's appropriate for us that will provide uh, returns that are attractive enough for in this environment or otherwise. So are there any other creative structures that you've approached? I mean, have you looked at preferred equity? Have you guys utilized preferred equity in any of your deals? 
We have, yeah. Preferred equity is a is a is a great product. I think it's great. It can be a great product as a pref lender, actually putting out the pref dollars, or it can be as a pref borrower to augment your common equity return. And we've done both. We've been on both sides of the preferred equity table. Um, you know, just to highlight in 2020, there was, you know, everybody initially freaked out after COVID and lenders actually brought down their loan to values and they had COVID reserves. So it was was really a lot less leverage coming from the debt side. And so we saw that and we stepped up as a pref lender, we provided that gap equity that appeared in the capital structure during that time. And so we were very successful, um, with that preferred equity strategy at that time as being a pref lender. But you know, before that, we've also been a pref borrower where we had very strong conviction about the uh, returns of a deal, and we felt that we could actually add in some preferred equity, which would further magnify those returns. And it's it's interesting. I think um, you know some people would think, well, the returns are a little skinny, so if we layer in preferred equity, we'll get the returns better. And it's true, the returns on paper will get better, but you're also adding risks. You have to be comfortable with the risk and not all risks are the same because if you're adding leverage, but that leverage is, let's let's say, um, non-foreclosable leverage or, you know, if if that sort of, if that added leverage doesn't have the ability to foreclose on you or have a maturity and things like that, then it's soft leverage. And so it may kind of squeeze your cash flows, but it's actually not going to cause you to lose money permanently. And so that's the type of leverage that's definitely much more acceptable than, you know, scary bridge loan that, Hey, if you don't make this happen, you're going to get the deal taken. So I think that's another way to look at things. Um, but going back to the idea of, of, of borrowing pref, I think, you know, it's better to do it when you actually have a really good deal and then you put it in because it's, the deal is so good that the, again, the reward outweighs the risk rather than when the deal's skinny and you try to slip in the pref, right? You just made the deal a little bit look better, but it's also, again, much more risky. I think it's so important for us to be having this conversation um, and, and for folks to be engaging in this type of conversation, whether they're active or passive investors, because you have to understand all of the different mechanisms at play and, and the beliefs and the reasons behind certain strategies. And so obviously this all interfaces with sort of uh, uncharted territory that we're experiencing in the economy, whether it's uh, in in certain micro environments and certain sub markets, as well as obviously from a macro perspective, globally, nationally and so forth. So tell me a little bit about what, how are you seeing this current environment and how are you seeing this constant evolution and where this is evolving, whether it is related to the pandemic, whether it's related to some geopolitical moves, um, you know, currency and so forth. I mean, how are you making sense of everything that's going on right now? Yeah. So I think, so the main things that we're looking at and how we're digesting everything that's happening in the world is, uh, rent inflation, right? Rent growth or rent inflation, whatever it is, either either way, rents have gone up a lot. And the predictions are that rents will still continue to go up um, substantially over the short term and then kind of slow down to kind of a, a regular long-term average over time. So so we, we do buy into that and we believe that there's a lot more rent growth to come. And what's interesting, there was just so much uncertainty at the beginning of COVID. And so everyone thought, you know, all the data sources thought that rents would go down, which they certainly did in in certain areas that were most affected. But in general, and especially in the the right areas where there's, uh, you know, affordable workforce housing type stuff, that's been doing really well. And I think it'll continue to do well. Um, COVID just accelerated already long-term trends that were happening. And, uh, you know, know, those, those trends are people moving to more affordable cities, 
and people uh, renting um, renting suburban garden style workforce housing. And so that that just accelerated that trend. So that's why we were seeing even more rent growth. And so that's really one of the big things that we're including in our underwriting is this pop in rent growth, because that is what's, that's what's happening. And we think that's what's necessary for us to forecast for us to be competitive in the market and win deals. If we're just conservative and say, well, rents are going to go down 10% next year because we're worried about it. Yeah. We will never buy a deal. It's just the market's too competitive and the market doesn't agree with us. So it's not going to happen. The other thing is, on the cap rate side. So we've got, we've got inflation, we have interest rates and then how interest rates correlate with cap rates. Right. So I think the cap rate scenario, you know, everyone's, that's just a guess. Cap rates are, they go up, they go down sometimes in line with interest rates, sometimes not. So that's just speculation. But for us, we do believe that cap rates will uh, stay low. I don't think, you know, there's some very smart investors that I know personally that are telling me, Hey, I'm going to sit on the sidelines until cap rates go to 8%. I don't think that's ever going to happen. So, so that's just how we feel. So, so we are willing to be aggressive with our exit cap rates because we do feel that we're going to be in a low cap rate environment for the long term, and and then finally we have interest rates, and so a lot of people are worried about interest rates rising, right? The Fed's talking about, um, you know, taking their foot off the gas for quantitative easing, and then also wanting to raise rates and whatnot. Obviously, rates are at zero, so theoretically they only have one place to go but up. So a lot of people are trying to lock in rates right now. Um, but to me, the, the way I look at it is the, the Fed's going to have a really hard time raising interest rates, as they always do. If you look back in time, they've always had a much harder time. It's taken them much longer, and they don't raise them as much as they want. So I think we're going to have short-term interest rates, which is what the Fed controls. We're, we're going to have short interest, short-term interest rates stay low for a long time, at least three years. And then long-term interest rates, which kind of specifically the 10-year treasury yield, which is what long-term mortgages are based off of if you're borrowing long-term fixed rate financing, um, I think that has a chance to go a little higher. Uh, So a lot of people will think, oh, well, interest rates go up and down, but there's actually two interest rates. You have short-term interest rates and long-term interest rates, and they don't have to move together, right? That's over the cycle, we typically experience a changing in the steepness of the yield curve, right? Early cycle, it's usually steeper, and then late cycle, it starts to flatten out. So you know, I don't even really know at this point where we're, if we're late cycle, early cycle, but we have a, a reasonably steep yield curve right now, actually, which is a good sign, right? You, as people kind of classically point to the inversion, inverting of the yield curve as a sign of a recession. So I, I don't think we're going to have a recession. And I think with the steepness of the yield curve, it makes sense, in my opinion, to borrow floating rate debt, because if the difference between long-term debt is as high, short-term debt is low, right? You can borrow floating and be cheap. And, um, and since I do think it's going to stay cheap for the next three years, I, that's, that's kind of the macro thesis that we have, which informs our financing strategy. That's so valuable. That's so, um, insightful. Where do you think we are? I mean, if you had to, if you had to guess, I mean, in terms of the, the stage of the market cycle, obviously it's a very unique market cycle. Um, one that maybe not, no one has ever experienced before. Um, but where do you think we are in the, in that market cycle right now? Yeah. So I think everybody knew that we were super late cycle when, when COVID hit, everyone was looking around thinking, gosh, this is the longest recovery ever. We have to have a recession. But at the same time, as they were looking around, they saw no systemic issue with the economy. We weren't over leveraged. Uh, we, I mean, we didn't have overbuilding. So everything was looking good. So nobody could really see where a recession would come from, but everyone just felt that we were late cycle because prices were high and, um, and we just had, had to, it's been so long. 
And so, of course, you know, we're looking around, looking for what's going to come. And then boom, this thing comes that we never could have thought of. Right. And so that taught me a lesson of, you know, when it's late cycle and you can't see the thing that's going to stop the cycle doesn't mean it's not going to happen. I, just, I feel like it just kind of taught me that it has to happen. There's just some thing that's pulling the system that, you know, we just have to have these cycles, but at the same time, we've figured out a way to mess around with these cycles, right? The fed is very involved, right? The fed used to, the fed has just gotten more and more hands-on with every uh, recession, with every cycle. So we had, we've experienced with COVID the quickest, shortest recession ever, right? We had, um, you know, the whole, the whole economic system freaked out for a couple of weeks, but then boom, we got tons of liquidity, which you can't really have a recession without sucking the air out of the system and which is liquidity and liquidity was pumped into the system. So you, with the way that financial conditions are so loose right now, it's impossible to have a recession. You just, you can't, there's too much money everywhere. And so you can't have a recession. And so what's so, you know, I think we were like 10th, 11th, 12th inning pre COVID and then COVID caused I don't know, maybe to, to shift back to like the seventh inning or something. But then at the same time, because we pumped so much liquidity in the system, the game isn't a nine inning game anymore. It's now like a 22 inning game uh, because we have to work through all this liquidity for, for years. So I think um, similar to the way that interest rates are going to stay short, uh, the short-term interest rates are going to stay low for about three years, in my opinion. I think that's kind of our runway too, before we have to worry about um, any sort of recession um, where we have substantially slower growth, just because like I said, it's, it's tied to the liquidity. There's just so much money momentum that has to flow through the system. So does this make the next recession if, you know, in the, in the 23rd inning of this ball game, as we, as we've, you know, been using these sort of uh, metaphors um, is the 23rd inning more painful than ever. If this is the case, if uh, you know, the fed intervention, you know, has, has extended the game to this standpoint, what's your take on that? It's a great question. And so I think no. And the reason why is because the Fed's not going to let it happen. And it's a really scary idea because it's kind of just like an extend and pretend and just kick the can, kick the can. Right. Modern uh, monetary because, theory, right? Right. And the and because the question you ask, the answer is absolutely, obviously, right? If you, you typically, when you push a problem off into the future, what does the problem do? It just gets bigger. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, but that's exactly what the Fed does, right? The Fed just inflated, uh, you know, to, to rebound the economy from COVID, they just injected a bunch of liquidity, lowered rates. When you lower interest rates, it makes asset values go up because assets are valued based on a discount rate. Uh, and with, so uh, same thing with 2008, we just saw a big asset inflation. And so the problem with this kicking down, kicking the can down the road process is it widens the wealth gap because people who own assets, their asset values get inflated. People who don't own assets makes it that much harder, right? If I could have bought a deal at a six cap, but then assets got inflated and now it's a four cap. Now it's just that much harder for me to buy. And if I do have the capital to buy, which, okay, fine, you have the capital to buy, but now you're buying a four cap, you know, what's going to lead to better wealth, a six cap that compresses to a four or to a four cap that who knows where it goes next. So it's um, it does exacerbate the wealth gap. And that's kind of what concerns me on a more, uh, I don't know, like theoretical level or I'm not sure the right word, but it's not that I'm necessarily trying to save the world and I want everybody to be rich. I mean, that would be great, but I'm concerned that the widening of the wealth gap causes populism. The people are unhappy and people want change. And then we have 
new policy implemented that is um, not conducive towards growth and capitalism. And that's what slows down the economy. And then we have stagflation in a worst case scenario. So that's kind of really like high level, who knows, but it's really scary. Like I read in the Wall Street Journal yesterday that in Berlin, because housing prices are going so crazy and rents going so crazy, you know, they passed a non-binding referendum to nationalize every apartment owner that has more than 3000 units. Wow. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, it's basically, I mean, that would just destroy my business and that's, that's socialism. So it's, it's very scary. And, um, you know, that's why it's at the highest levels. It's hard to not connect politics with economics, but that's kind of my, my too much there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we could go down so many different rabbit holes on that. And obviously none of us can predict the future, but I think it's important for us to watch the clues in the news to evaluate and, and to remain resourceful and to recognize that no matter what happens, we will figure it out and we will do the right thing for, you know, for ourselves, for the people that we work with and so forth. And, and that actually kind of bridges the gap to a part of the conversation that I wanted to go with you in terms of mindset. And I know that for me, obviously mindset is extremely important because there's no way I could take action in a certain direction if I wasn't curating the thought process and aware of, you know, negative thought process that could hold me back. But I'd love to talk a little bit about uh, your proactive approach to facilitating your own mindset. Could you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely big on mindset. I, I had a very fortunate journey as far as mindset goes, because uh, definitely an introvert. And when I was growing up, I felt the consequences of being an introvert. Um, yeah, I can remember vividly. I remember this one time that it was recess and I'm, I don't know, let's say 10 years old or something. And I'm just sitting there waiting for recess to be done. Cause I'm like, what's the point of recess? This is stupid. Let's just go back inside. Let's get our work done. And you know, this girl comes up to me and says, Oh, don't you want to play? And why play? I, you know, I was just in a very negative mindset and I noticed how negativity would then in your mind would actually manifest in negativity in your life. And that's not great. <laughs> and then something else I'm very grateful for is sports. I played football and especially as a quarterback, football is a very mental game. And I, you know, sometimes I was very clutch, but oftentimes I was not clutch. You know, the moment would get the best of me and I would uh, choke. And why, why did I choke? Right. It has nothing to do with my athletic ability. It, it all had to do with my mind and it would be the self-talk that I have. Of, oh, you know, you're not a winner. Oh, you're not going to make it. Or this is, you should be nervous or whatever it is. And so what's uh, the pivotal moment for me to get to the point is, uh, basically at one practice, I broke my knee or broke my hip. And there was a small, I forget what you call it, but a little fracture where, you know, I pulled on it and that little piece of the bone broke off with the tendon and I couldn't even lift my right leg. And it was just, it was right before the season. It was supposed to be a really big year for me and all this work leading up to this moment. And boom, it felt like it was all taken away from me. And I was so depressed and I felt devoid of purpose because it was like my whole life's purpose was being taken away because this is, like I said, all what I had worked towards. And in those, in, in that really just most depressing point of my life, I just became extremely happy, insanely happy because I had gotten to a level of acceptance. I had accepted what was and was okay. And then I started reading uh, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle and started meditating and all these things precipitated from that period of time and all these th habits and ideas that I carry with me since that time. And so I'm extremely grateful for that. So that's kind of where my mindset comes from. And so now I feel like I'm a tremendously happy person 
I'm very proactive. And if I don't like something, I change it. It's, you know, everything is my fault because if you don't take responsibility, then how can you improve the situation? So I always say, everything's my fault. And that goes back to being a quarterback. I throw a perfect pass, hit the receiver right in the hands. Oh, my bad. <laughs> if they drop that. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of why I'm, uh, yeah, that's the, the story of it and, and where I am today and why I'm so grateful for, for that. Yeah. And there's so many thinking tools that I, I just resonates with me when you're telling me the story about growing up and playing sports. And I can even remember my own experience. I, I played baseball growing up and I remember uh, I was going through a, a hitting slump for a while. And I remember stepping up to the plate and this was probably subconscious at this point in time, because I wasn't nearly as aware, aware or conscious as I would, you know, be grateful to, to share that I am today. And as I continue to grow through that, but, you know, I would tell myself, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I better not strike out or I can't strike out again, or what happens if I strike out? And, you know, of course I'm planting the seeds of, of this thought that I'm trying to avoid, but what's happening is I'm getting closer to this thing that I, I don't want to occur. It's just interesting when you start to become more aware of that. And so the other thing that I wanted to bring up is, as you mentioned about your injury, I think it's really interesting. You think about all these thinking tools that are available to us if we choose to bring them to our awareness, one of which is something that Tony Robbins shares frequently is that life happens for us and not to us. And so in some way we may be devastated about some circumstance in our life, but if we recognize the fact that, you know what, everything happens in a supporting mechanism for our overall journey, I think that's so powerful. And that's an example of utilizing mindset to our advantage rather than our disadvantage. And there's so many different times where this comes in play, right? And in every single waking moment, we have the choice to either say I'm the victim or I'm the victor. And, you know, I have extreme ownership of the fact that any circumstance can come back to my responsibility. And I just think that's extremely powerful. So Rob, this is an amazing conversation and very dynamic, very wide ranging. And I, I just appreciate you so much. I look forward to uh, part two of our conversation at a point in the future. But until that time, I want to transition into our rapid fire section. We call it the rare air questionnaire. It's all about being uncommon. It's about understanding all of these forces at play, whether it's in the economics sphere or whether it's in our mind and, and whether it's in you know the way that we take action. So I want to ask you a few questions, um, one of which is related to books and reading. If you had to point to two or three of the most impactful books that you've read over the past few years, what would those be and why? Yeah. So one of them was uh, The Power of Now that I mentioned earlier, which I think is for, for, for many kind of an intense, uh, maybe too esoteric start, but hopefully it grabs you the right way. And then it inspires you to read a bunch of other stuff that's similar in, in the kind of the mindset mindfulness space, the ha happiness space, you know, more accessible book would be 10% happier. That's a, you know, really well-written, great story uh, that I actually just read a couple months ago. So yeah, I feel like there's that category of book, which is um, mindset, happiness, mindfulness, that stuff. And then some, some really good books on the business side would be uh, Getting More, which is by Professor Stuart Diamond. I always talk about this book. It's probably the book that I've reread the most um, and it's a long one, so it's not easy to reread all the time, but I just think it's so actionable and powerful. It's all about um, ne negotiating principles, but it's not, it's not the idea of negotiating like I win, you lose, and it's this tough negotiation. It's all about how do we take a situation and then look at it slightly differently where we all can win or, you know, just strategies to get more. And I, so I, I love that book. And uh, actually in a couple, in about a week and a half, um, 
we'll be having Professor Stuart Diamond, who's a, a Wharton professor um, that wrote that book. I'm, I'm having him come to an event that I'm hosting uh, with, with real estate professionals. And we're going to have a personalized negotiation workshop for commercial real estate investors uh, with him in person. So I'm super excited about that. So, so getting more. And then I'm also really passionate about man- management. I think people management is key. So the best books in people management are um, High Output Management by Andrew Grove, um, the CEO of Intel. That's an, just a classic, classic management book. Um, another management book is, oh, I love this one, No Rules Rules by the CEO of Netflix. I forget his name, but that is exactly how I aspire to run my business. You know, very transparent. They want to pay people the top wages that they're worth. I mean, they want to pay what their employees are worth and they don't, they actually um, encourage their employees to go and shop around and look at other job opportunities that are out there and then bring them back to Netflix and say, and show them, Hey, this is what I saw. This is what I, this is what my market value is. Google wants to hire me for X. Okay, great. We'll match that. And, you know, we want you to be here. And Netflix is very inspired to have the best employees, not just good. And so that's one of the ways that they do that. So yeah, I love, love those books. That's awesome. And we'll put links in the show notes as to where the listeners can find all of those books. And I'm excited to pick up a few of those. And uh, there's been a few that have been on my list for quite a while. So I'll have to move those up the uh, up the list. And of course, we'll put uh, your book on the uh, the list there as well for folks to check out the definitive guide to underwriting multifamily acquisitions. Um, as a prolific author yourself, it's, it's great to, uh, to ask you that question. Um, if you had to point to two or three of the biggest ways you elevate your life on a daily basis, Rob, what would you say and why? Yeah, well, I think, I think meditation is a very high ROI activity. You spend 20 minutes a day meditating and then it can potentially change your entire day. So that's, uh, that's something that is a great habit. So I, I meditate, I try to meditate every day. Um, something really big. And we, we just touched on this earlier when you, you brought up at the very beginning about uh, kind of mindset and having a purpose and vision and things like that. So I love writing down my goals. I think, you know, there's some statistic that if you write your down, down your goals, they're 25% more likely to come true or and things like that. So I think just sitting there and marinating with your goals, just writing them on paper and then staring at them. Okay. How do I make this happen? Right. Cause the steps may not always be clear. So I, I've, I have actually, I've got a couple right in front of me. So I have these books and they're just full of my daily writings of my goals and, you know, going back for, I don't know, uh, five years now. And it's just every day I'm writing my goals and then thinking, okay, how do I get there? How do I get there? How do I get there? And the more time you spend doing that, the more likely you'll succeed. I love that. That's awesome. That's a great reminder uh, for all of us. And and it's so funny. I think about the the percentages. It's like sixty seven percent of all statistics were made up on the spot. I believe is <laughs> uh, is what I've heard. So uh, no, I, I, in all in all seriousness, I, I definitely think there's so much value in writing goals. And so thank you for that uh, reminder and doing that on a continual basis. What's the biggest way that you elevate others around you, Rob? Yeah. So growing up, I've always been a teacher of sorts or coach. And so I've, I've always enjoyed uh, helping people. And, and I feel like I can be not always, but I can be a patient person. So I, I do like to teach and uh, whether it's a, you know, fellow person in the, in the real estate space and, and, you know, we're kind of collaborating on a partnership structure or analyzing a deal or something like that, or I'm just, you know, sharing my insights uh, about the business. I, I, I really do enjoy doing that. 
I love it, man. Well, you've been a coach for us today. Um, we've learned so much. I want to acknowledge you for your commitment to excellence in evaluation and understanding how you can put complex opportunities together and continue to be successful in an evolving environment, man. I just want to acknowledge you so much uh, for your intellect, for your commitment to not only your own goals, but inspiring others as well. Rob Beardsley, thank you so much for being on Elevate. Do you have any parting thoughts or words of wisdom that you'd like to share with Elevate Nation? Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I, I love the opportunity to be able to talk about uh, some more unique topics, you know, not just real estate and stuff. So that's, that's really cool. Um, but yeah, thanks everybody for listening. And um, if you want to learn more about us, you can head over to lscre.com. That's our, uh, our Lone Star Capital website. And on, on that website, there's a link to download our underwriting model spreadsheet, which you can get for free. Uh, that'll be a great tool for you to analyze deals and kind of get a window into how we look at them. And if you really want uh, the, the best window into how we analyze deals, then then my book would be uh, really the best resource. So, uh, you know, would greatly appreciate it for you to check it out on Amazon. Absolutely. We'll put a link in the show notes as to where you can just link directly to Rob's website and Lone Star Capital. Also where you can find Rob on LinkedIn, as well as Instagram, which is at Rob underscore Beardsley. Um, so you definitely want to go check him out. You definitely want to go follow up with Rob and learn from him deeper because man, we just scratched the surface today. Rob, thank you again for being on the show. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Elevate Nation. What a phenomenal conversation with the intelligent, the thoughtful and uh, really, really friendly Rob Beardsley, of course. Uh, man, there's so much value in this conversation. There's so much insight that uh, you can gain from understanding how Rob is really looking at not only the economy, um, this asset class in multifamily real estate, but also behaviors and trends and the way that, you know, the Federal Reserve is intervening, the way that uh, governments around the world are making moves. I think it's just so important and so insightful. And so I'm just so grateful for this conversation. I'm so grateful for this opportunity to speak with Rob. I want to encourage you to re-listen to the show because repetition is the mother of all skill. If you listen again, there's more likely you're going to learn more. You're going to learn something new as well. There's going to be things that you missed from this conversation. I want to encourage you to also share this with a friend and have a discussion about this episode. How do you feel about where we're at in the current cycle, the economic cycle? Where do you think this is going? Where do you think uh, interest rates are going? Where do you think geopolitical policies are going? And how does that impact your own investing strategy? I think it's important for us all to discuss. And we can also learn more when we discuss with others. So I want to encourage you to share this with someone else and have a discussion. And most importantly, of course, take massive action. Apply what you learned today. What's one thing that you learned today and what can you do to make that a part of your own integration by taking steps and taking massive action. Elevate Nation, until next time, thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to Elevate. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and pay it forward by sharing with a friend. Most importantly, take this opportunity to elevate your results by taking immediate action on what you learned. For more, visit elevatepod.com.